It's episode 85, and first and foremost, Alex is back. Welcome back, buddy. <laughs> I'm still a little <laughs> sick. I've got, a, you know, that annoying little tickle in my throat, but uh, the Rona finally got me. It wasn't too terribly awful, although there was one day that was pretty rough. Like, my lungs didn't really feel like they fitted in my chest anymore. But, uh, you know, after that, after that one day and a whole bunch of cough syrup, I was all good. Yeah, I, I actually was really impressed it was your first time. I, I think if I get it again, it's going to be my fourth. I have no idea how I avoided it so long with a two-year-old in daycare. Yeah, really, really. That's true. But I'm also really excited to say that I think all the way from episode one or two, our buddy Wendell is back. Hello, Wendell. Welcome back to Self-Hosted. How's it going? <laughs> it's going great. <laughs> there's a million things to talk about. There's there's so much exciting stuff in the self-hosting world because there's liquidation happening you can get a 7773 for like $4,000 if you're that crazy to run it in your home lab. I mean, that's a steal. Alex, you're that crazy. Never mind the power bill, though, these days. <laughs> hey, that thing sips the power when it's not doing anything. Okay, define sips. Uh, Idling at about 68 watts. Oh, okay, yeah. That's that's like <laughs> that's a healthy sip. That's my but... entire server. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that is nice to see. Should we maybe begin with low-powered hardware in the self-hosting area? There's so much. I think so, yeah, because, Chris, you've recently got off the, uh, if, if Linux Unplugged titles are to be believed, you've got off the Raspberry Pi train recently for the uh, the Odroid train, or the x86 train, should I say. And that's been going great. I've been doing more and more, more than I ever could before. It's great to have access to QuickSync. But, you know, the Odroid's power draw, when it's idle... <laughs> It's not exactly 65 watts. It's more like 1.5 watts. Yeah, that is something. Yeah. It gets me thinking about these new Intel chips with their uh, their kind of weird architecture these days. They've got the performance cores and the e-cores. There's been a whole bunch of changes on the Intel side. Hey, Wendell? You can get a Linux-based operating system that will handle it really well, and that works. that works pretty well. My pause is the horror show that's going out of my head with VMware and Proxmox and XCPNG. It's not a lot of fun with any of those because XCPNG is, you know, it's an older kernel, but they do a lot of patches. But mixed cores with that, it's just, uh, I, don't, I don't like inconsistent performance. I, I'm Honestly, I'm kind of annoyed with XCPNG because I have a separate thread going and they're, they're basically okay with, the performance not being as good as it could be in the hypervisor. And I'm not sure what it is, but like turbo is not working correctly on some high-end parts that will turbo like crazy, but it's not really super applicable for the home lab. But those issues are, are kind of bleed over when we're talking about mixed, small, and big cores. So Proxmox works a little better because you can run a newer Linux kernel and and that'll and the Linux kernel will do the appropriate juggling for that. And so, yeah, like a 13900K, you can end up with a 24-core system if you want to go something crazy like that for your home setup but really it's like 64 gigabytes of memory is like the largest practical maximum although you can do 128 gigabytes of memory uh but the the hundred dollar processors the hundred ish dollar processors i think are way more interesting in that lga uh 1700 socket because you can run 32 or 64 gigs of memory pretty inexpensively because you get ddr4 and the motherboard for like your home server use case, there's not a lot of super interesting motherboards for LGA 1700. There's one from Gigabyte. They didn't make enough. I almost, I'm really tempted to do a, a group buy of those motherboards on um, level one, like buy a hundred of them or 200 of them and then resell them because it's a W680 chipset and that motherboard works pretty well. I'd like to have more slots, but the motherboard works pretty well. And that's what I'm, I'm, I've got a test system that I've been just, I'm, blown away by how insanely fast it is it's six alder lake p cores no e cores on a on a processor that i got for around a hundred dollars the 12 400 and so it turbos like crazy it turbos like there's there's nobody's business and so those six cores are insanely fast even xcpng vmware proxmox whatever you want to run on it it's very very fast it puts all of the embedded processors to shame it really is shocking like 2x is fast gigabyte made my first real you know foray into home server you know dual xeon socket boards it had two 10 gig nicks it was the ga7 pesh 2 
that thing was awesome. It had a, an HBA built directly into the board and two 10 gig NICs plus a, a BMC NIC as well. What is it about this other gigabyte board that you mentioned, the 12th, 13th gen board that uh, has got you interested? Because it's so disruptive. So like you go on eBay or you look at, you know, I need to find an appropriate home server system. And you look at the board and it's not, it's really kind of unremarkable. You've got two X8 slots that'll run, you know, to the CPU. And then, you know, Alder Lake has got the extra lanes and then the DMI is eight lanes. So it's got a ton of M.2 slots. In my video, I converted the M.2 slots into two and a half gig NICs. So you can get M.2, two and a half gig or 10 gig NICs. Those are a lot of fun. So you add a bunch of NICs that way. And then you got three PCIe slots that you can mix and match for peripherals, disk storage, whatever, which is pretty reasonable. And 32 or 64 gigs of memory, which is pretty reasonable. And you could put an i5 in there. So is that the route you'd go these days, uh, a 12th or 13th gen CPU? Or would you be tempted to look for, you know, four, five-year-old, eighth, ninth, tenth gen, something like that? No, no, because the Alder Lake P-Cores are so insanely fast. It is, Intel is not asleep at the wheel anymore. I mean, it is not incremental improvements over the course. So like, if you look at like 10th to 11th gen, total snooze fest. And yeah, I mean, they're really good. If you're rocking a, a ninth, 10th, 11th generation system, okay, that's fine. But the per core performance is almost a 2X in those configurations. And with the W680 chipset, they're not playing games with ECC anymore. So the Gigabyte board's DDR4. So you can get commodity DDR4. All the hyperscalers and everybody else is sucking up the DDR5 ECC and registered ECC like there's no tomorrow and i'm not even really sure we've completely figured out ddr5 yet so this, this gigabyte board is ddr4 and so you can get cheap 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 commodity ddr4 memory and that 6p core system will run circles around anything that's older it's like oh i've got this you know great you know lenovo system that was a, a small form factor that has a two and a half week nick it's like yeah i don't care this thing is twice as fast per core and the kinds of things that you're running on a home server generally run better with fewer faster cores than more slower cores. You want SMB to, you know, run rock your socks off and you're not willing to set up multi-channel. Having insanely fast cores is nice. What about the AMD side of things? Because they've had a pretty big launch with the Ryzen 7000 stuff lately. Those are going to cost more, but those are also really nice. So I set up a system uh, around Linux you know, just vanilla Linux, but running services on vanilla Linux based on the 7950X. But I used the, you know, the 7950X, it'll it'll consume north of 150 watts happily, but you can configure it to not do that. And so if you're if you're willing to let it run, it's not quite 65 watts. Some some the happy medium, I think, is probably around 80 or 85 watts. You can tell it to run at that. It runs cooler. It uses way less power, and you lose like maybe five or six percent overall performance. And you have 16 homogeneous cores. And yeah, the processor is like 558 dollars, 600 dollars, something like that, because on sale right now. But it's 16 cores, and that is a really monstrous system. The only limitation is really the whole the aforementioned 64 to 128 gigabytes of memory. Those cores are so awesome that in a home server scenario, for me, 128 gigs doesn't doesn't do it. And 64 gigs is insanely way faster than 128 gig. Do, in your opinion, the media encoding engines matter? With Intel, it's QuickSync. With AMD, the support, certainly for like Plex and Jellyfin and stuff like that, is is a bit a bit ropey. Yeah, yeah. QuickSync is still is still much more well supported. It is an uh, option now on the AMD side and the encoder, the hardware is there and it's very good, but I don't think the software has, uh, the software enablement has happened yet, but you know, PCIe hardware runs circles around both QuickSync and the uh, CPU, but it uses a lot more power. So it just depends on what you're building. It's interesting. I was speaking to some people in our discord today from England and their electricity prices. When I left, I think I was, you know, this is four or five years ago. I was paying about 14, 12, 14 pence a kilowatt hour. They're paying 40 to 50 pence now Good Lord. per kilowatt hour. And uh, through that lens, an energy efficient system pays for itself extremely quickly. Yeah, that, that six core Alder Lake system will give you quick sync and everything else. And when it's idle, it will be very like, honestly, the gigabyte board, the ASP 2500 uses because uh, it's, a, you know, the system on the IPMI that's in a system and a system that's always on. 
will use more power than the CPU at idle. They do. It's crazy. Why do BMCs need to use so much so much electricity just to sit there and provide an insecure web UI, you know? Maybe that's how they make their money. It's doing some sort of cryptocurrency mining in the background. <laughs> it's owned by the power company. They have stock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can disable that and get and get I was shocked um when I, when I was building the test system, the thing that's using the most power now is keeping the mechanical hard drives spinning. Oh yeah. Are you a spin down sort of gentleman or? A- I haven't historically been, but I'm becoming that. And it's just, it's like, a- <laughs> yeah, with, with ZFS in particular, that can be a bit of a pain. If you have the metadata special device, it seems to help because then all the metadata is stored on the SSD or on, on a solid state. And you can also specify that smaller files are stored that way as well. So mm. if you're careful with your data sets and everything else, then you'll, you're using your mechanical storage just for bulk storage and then it ends up working pretty well well that's a great tip you could have spent a lot of time chasing some some, down some rabbit holes but you can do it while we're talking storage uh, what are you looking at for local storage these days personally i think we should delineate and maybe also for if you want to disclose for work side but we always like to ask our guests (laughs) what they're doing storage wise and i think you've ranked pretty highly on that list yeah you're on our leaderboard you're at the top you've got a petabyte which nobody's come close to yeah i just i a few it was what it's like a month and a half two months ago i was like all right i'll just bite the bullet so i i gotta there's we have it's a it's about 1.2 petabytes locally there's one system that has (laughs) that has a, a usable it has a petabyte usable and then the other system is 180 or 100 i think it's it's 180 ish terabytes give or take uh at home i have six 14 or 16 terabyte hard drives in a raid z2 and eight two terabyte nvme that are enterprise cast off drives that are just completely shredded like they were in production use for three or four years and they've 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 had you know their their drive drive lifetime is is let's say five petabytes i don't remember what the numbers are but if you look at the like how much those drives have been used they've been used like 2.1 petabytes (laughs) and so it's like i'll just i'll put eight of them in and we'll raid z2 those as well so i have a yeah i have a an ssd pool and i have a i have a mechanical storage pool and the mechanical storage pool has all the media and everything on it and it's pretty full i did the uh it's what is it it's like the ultimate ripping machine or fully fully automatic ripping machine there's a github project and uh jeff gearling did a video on um the blu-ray side of it i'm scared to death to do that because youtube will just you know <laughs> disney or somebody will watch it and just blah 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 and then i don't have a channel anymore so i got a pretty extensive dvd collection and so i ripped a re re-ripped all that for a while it was like i'll just stream it i don't need to do this i don't need to store this and so i didn't really do a good job maintaining the I'd already ripped all my DVDs once, and so now I've re- redone that. And and it, we have left the golden age of streaming. It has left the building. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, I definitely have that kind of now sort of thought process of well, I, I better have a local copy of this because who knows when they might pull it and it won't be available. And if my kids love this show, I don't want it to become unavailable. Final Space Man, that's the perfect example. Final Space. Yeah, never forget. Never forget Final Space. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to beat over a petabyte of storage. So I think they'll remain <laughs> high on the on the chart for a while. Congrats, Wendell. It's like this is like Top Gear. It's like Lewis Hamilton coming on and going a second faster. It's like okay, you're already in the lead. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> More petabytes now. Yeah. So last time we spoke to you, I think you were doing some cool stuff around your mailbox and Bluetooth low energy sensors, that kind of stuff. What have you got going in the home automation side of things these days? So I just did, um, uh, I don't know if it's out yet or not. I got, I was, the Seed Studio reached out. And so I talked to them and they filled in some gaps on some stuff that's really exciting. One of the things is they have the re-server. They have the re-terminal, re-server, and some sensors. And so re-server I'll mention first. You can get it in a bunch of different configurations. One of them has Thunderbolt. It's very low powered. It has two mechanical three uh, two three and a half inch drive bays you can use with mechanical drives or anything else. That's a very low power system. It's it's shockingly powerful. It has three M.2 internally, B key, E key, and M key. And I set up that with ZFS, uh, a mirror, and 
metadata on the M.2. Also with Optane, because Optane's on fire sale. We should talk about the Optane fire sale. Woo! All right. There's so, yeah. there's so much going on. And so I love that little thing. It's low <laughs> power. It's Intel, four core. It's older. It's not, you know, going to burn your house down with firepower like the older Lake CPUs, but it's pretty good. And it's a nice, it's an attractive aluminum enclosure. The uh, specs are all online. You can 3D print accessories for it. And it's it's a fan in the bottom vent from the top. The reservers, it's really, really cool. I'm having a lot of fun with it. And then they sent me, I, I showed them the setup that I had with my, I don't think I have one of those sensors handy. I've got the O2 sensors, the, or the, the O2 CO2 sensors for my house. And I sort of showed some of the setup that I did with that. And so I've got a re-terminal tied into Home Assistant now because it's a Raspberry Pi compute module in a thing, in a in like an enclosure. And the enclosure is pretty attractive. Although it's not power over Ethernet, it's not perfect. It's got some rough edges, some obvious things they could have done better. Uh, PoE would be so nice. Yeah, but it's a, it's a touchscreen and I got it tied in with Home Assistant now. It's all my Home Assistant stuff. And so where... The uh, one of the thermostats was for one of the middle aged heating and cooling systems that was in my house that's no longer there. I put I put it there and I I'm powering it that way and I'm I've I used the old thermostat wire to pull Cat six and so it's got power and everything else and that has gone really well and so in a home assistant I can see what it's doing as far as air quality and if the the heat exchanger is on and if it. It'll, it'll override the air conditioning system and turn the fan on to just move air around the house. But the existing HVAC system continues to work without Home Assistant. So everything that I have ever done with sensors and everything else could be on fire and broken. And I will still have at least basic temperature control and environmental controls. I kind of seem to recall you were semi-skeptical of Home Assistant a couple of years ago. Has that? Are, are you still a little skeptical that it could fail? Is that why you designed it that way? Yes. And it's actually worked out really well. And Home Assistant has added the high availability features that I was looking for since then. So you can run a cluster of Home Assistant, which is... Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, do, they don't have a mechanism for shooting the other node in the head, though. So you could get split brain. At least I'm pretty sure you can get split brain. But, you know, if that's the worst that we're dealing with on thermostat controls, it's not bad. I hadn't seen this re-terminal thing before from Siege Studio. This is a, for those that aren't familiar as well, it's an all-in-one Raspberry Pi board, which takes a CM4 module and it can connect over Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, all the rest of it. I think it looks, it looks pretty cool. Like there's an HDMI or sorry, a micro HDMI, a micro SD card slot, all the rest of it that's on there. Uh, this thing looks pretty, pretty interesting. Have you got it mounted on the wall? I presume. Whenever I've been dealing with the, the modules, the compute modules for Raspberry Pi, I tend to run my Raspberry Pis pretty hard, and they get hot. This thing has a really huge mechanical heat sink that's connected to the outside of the enclosure, and it seems like they started with that for the design, and that is the best feature of this design. The touchscreen is very high quality, and it's so far no issues with it, and it's very, very uh, accurate, I guess, is probably the way to describe it. And it's been a lot of fun, you know, sort of hacking on that and making it a little more accessible. Yeah, no kidding. I could see, well, I don't know if I could see Chris doing this in the RV, putting someone else on the wall, but definitely in the studio. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, I have been thinking more and more instead of doing tablets that run wall panel or something like that and some, or some kiosk mode, but maybe I should just Raspberry Pi that or really CM4 it and a touchscreen. And this, this is kind of like, the next version of that that I didn't even really, I hadn't really even thought of is all in one device. It'd be great if you could embed it into the wall so it was flush with the wall. How slick would that be? You just need to get Brent to come around again. Do a little drywall work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would probably breathe better. <laughs> There's a backpack you can get for it that will give it proper power over Ethernet. But I ended up just running a DC, uh, an extra little DC cable for now. I don't, long term, I'm sort of torn because. I could actually run a DC cable through the wall and have the power over Ethernet thing in the basement. So like just a, a long extension for the, the wires needed for PoE, I guess. But I don't know. It's just, <laughs> it's. Uh... Yeah, I, that's my struggles as well. Yeah. And, and the other issue is, is what if I want to replace it with something else that's totally different down the road? And then I've done all this work for something that I only use for like two years. You know, there's that as well. It, that's where I ended up. It's like power. I'm going to have an Ethernet cable and then a little something else. And then maybe down the road, I'll have something that's just power over Ethernet and I won't use the other wire. And that's fine. 
All right. So the re-terminal, we'll put a link to that in the show notes at selfhosted.show slash 85, right? Because, you know, Seed is all about the whole electronic projects. They have a CO2 sensor module and they have adapters for that kind of stuff. So you can DIY that sort of stuff together using that as a basis and then really you know, build something that's you, but that was sort of Legoed together. Yeah. Yeah. And would last as long as you want to, you know, keep it. Did you, is that what you used? I noticed you did mention you have some sensors. Are those the sensors you're using or did you go a different route? Yeah. Well, so I, I have pre-existing, I have um, the co-pilot sensors, which have a USB output you can use, but I tried theirs and theirs is very good as well. I have been probably spending the last two weeks experimenting with water leak sensors, temperature sensors, humidity sensors, motion sensors, door sensors, window sensors, <laughs> presence sensors. And uh, I really still haven't found like the perfect combination of it. So I, I like, I kind of like what you're suggesting because it kind of feels like it's a little more permanent. It's a little more infrastructure. Yeah. It's kind of like you build it once and then you leave it. Yeah. And I still have, um, you know, my home alarm system has the uh, PIR motion sensors and mechanical door sensors and mechanical it, it's the home the home alarm sensors for uh water where it's not supposed to be and that sort of stuff are, are all tied into the alarm panel but the alarm panel is also tied into home assisted and that has been working fabulously well 100 percent reliability that's a pretty high number pretty high level pretty high level of re reliability there so far, it hasn't gone down, and it has its own lead-acid battery. So even when the power's been off, the lead, the separate lead-acid battery for the alarm system has kept it going. So it's like, oh, there's no power at my house, but the alarm system will still blare if somebody breaks in. Speaking of power, I think I uh, tripped across a video of yours uh, a few weeks ago about UPSs and stuff like that. I just thought it was an excellent video. Uh, and if anybody's curious about, you know, which UPS should I buy, how big should it be, and... We want to hear, you know, 20 minutes of uh, Wendell talking about UPSs. Almost all UPSs are just absolute trash. And it's just, it's just, it, it's all down here. We want UPSs <laughs> to be up here. They're all just down here. There, yes. There's no reason that we shouldn't be able to buy UPS and get a UPS that lasts 10 years. And it would only be marginally more expensive than the UPSs we have now. Yes. I was wondering about using something like, you know, the Jackeries that you can buy, these uh, lithium-ion-based portable battery packs as a UPS in hmm. some, some places. It's an interesting idea, Alex. I don't know what the switch time is on off the top of my mm. head. You'd need a really fast switch time. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it would depend. Are they generating the power? The power for those plugs, is that coming from the inverter and the battery all the time, or does it only switch over once it's done charging? Because in theory, in your setup, Alex, the Jackery would be in charge mode right? Plugged into source power. Yep. And so I guess the question is, is what happens when the batteries are fully charged? The outlets on the Jackery, where does that power come from? Is it just pass through? Who knows? But they're, you know, they're lithium ion, decent inverters. They give you the load information. They give you a nice digital display with the percentage of the battery. And they, they cost about as much as a high-end UPS. It's not a bad idea. It may be possible to override. If it's got a fast switch time, it may be possible to override things in software because if you want a lithium-ion battery to last 10 years, don't charge it past 70 or 72%, something like that. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. what it is off the top of my head. I'm sure that there's a battery expert in the, in the chat or in the comments that'll be like, this is the, the power curve for lithium, and this is what you want it to be. Yeah, for sure. That's what I, I try to go for. So in, in, in my RV, I have uh, six lithium-ion batteries and I'm aiming for about 70% just float charge when we're hooked up all the time for months at a time. But I have to I have to remember to remove that. And it's a manual thing because when we're on the road, I want to have them up at 100% so that way I have the full, the full range of the batteries. And, you know, it's one of those things where there's no automation for that because I have not, I have not really been able to automate the battery system and definitely has screwed me. So <laughs> I got to be careful. I've, I've run into the same thing with lead acid batteries. It's like, oh, these lead acid batteries will last forever. And it's like, I got to remember to, oh, I can't remember what, what model it is. There's a model of UPS where you can actually get a, an FTDI controller and plug in and just reprogram the UPS to not have the charge voltage be dumping 14.8 volts into the batteries all the time. And then boom, the lead acid batteries last two more years. 
Last week, I talked about some issues I was having with Zigbee, and we've gotten a lot of feedback, (laughs) a lot of feedback that was very helpful. I spent the last week sorting my Zigbee issues out, and I'm curious, Wendell, if you've ever had this issue. I I really wanted to like Zigbee because I know it's involved with the Matter standard, and so I thought, okay, this is the direction to go, but I have to say a lot of my devices have been dropping off the network. What are your experiences? Yeah, I got a bunch of Zigbee stuff. I set it up and then three days later, there was two things missing. And it's like, you know what? Nope, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. You know how many times a PIR sensor has dropped out of the alarm panel? Zero. <laughs> it's like that kind of stuff. It's too critical. I have a water sensor for a very specific spot that I need to watch very closely. And I, I don't want the sensor just dropping off the network and not alerting me. Yeah. I've even had that problem with Z-Wave, the Z-Wave devices. Where like occasionally a Z, it, it seems more reliable. The Z-Wave stuff seems a little more reliable than Zigbee, but you know, after a power outage or something weird like that, it's like, oh, look at that! All the garage Zigbee sensors and stuff, or and then it's like, okay, let me go flip some breakers on and off, and then I do that, and then everything comes back okay. Yeah, I, I have had a Z-Wave device as well drop off where it was like, okay, I don't know what happened. I'll go reboot it, and I, when I do restart it, it tends to bounce back. But if I don't notice, it's offline. The system's not very good about telling me, right? Home Assistant doesn't make it obvious that something critical has gone offline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, the way that the alarm panel is integrated, all of the the motion sensors are like, I last saw motion this time. I last saw motion this time. I, you get constant reassurance that, oh, yeah, everything is connected and working fine and it's good. And you could do the kind of, that kind of thing with other sensors, but, you know, come on. Yeah. I have yeah. these little IKEA... Uh, a listener sent me the correct pronunciation, Rodfri. So please, please tell me, Mr. Listener, if I got that right. The Swedish, you know, the tradition. Could you say it again? Trodfri. Something like that. I think that's what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean. The tradfri buttons, right? Tradfri, yeah, yeah. whatever. Trodfri. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> I've got a bunch of those. In fact, there's one right here next to me to turn these lights above my head on. They're all Zigbee and they work. 92% of the time, which is just enough to be really frustrating because you push it and you're like, <laughs> why didn't that work? And you push it again and it works. You're like, God damn it. Why, why, why yeah. didn't you work the first time? You are very frustrating. It's even more embarrassing when a friend or a family member hits the button and nothing happens. That's, that's the worst. I hate that. So now I thought I'd try and solve it with NFC tags through iOS and you can do the shortcut automation kind of nonsense. And they're even worse. They're even less reliable for some reason. Like I can't seem to get the reliable scan. Like I don't know if it's just iOS NFC APIs are really finicky or whatever, but there isn't a good solution really for an always on kind of low megahertz protocol like zigbee or z-wave should be they should be the answer they should they should work but they just don't where's my quality of service where's my assurance that this is working (laughs) can i have a button over ethernet (laughs) but i suppose the other thing you've got to consider is you know with a, a little battery powered button or something like that you can't be constantly pinging to say are you okay are you okay because that would just <laughs> that's the problem that is it and the always powered stuff does do better as a matter of the protocol though when you hit the button it should be a two-way thing the button sends the thing and gets the acknowledgement back i heard you otherwise the button just keeps buttoning (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, and same with the sensors like temperature drop i wake up and i send notification about temperature drop but there's also an issue in home assistant where these devices are essentially offline until they wake up to do their job and Home Assistant seems to be getting better about that, but it's not fantastic. And one of the things that can happen is it can say the temperature is 72 degrees Fahrenheit. And it, that that's the last number that got into Home Assistant. And if it doesn't wake up and transmit another number for eight hours, Home Assistant just happily reports 72 degrees and here's your little bar graph and everything's just fine. And really, the reality was the thing dropped off the network for eight hours. And I'm using mine to monitor my freezer. And in eight hours, you can spoil a freezer, you know? So. Yes. It, see, it's funny because all of these are things that engineers solved in like the 1970s or 1980s with these alarm sensors. And the alarm sensors, like the, the ones that I'm using are encrypted, but the ones just before the ones that I'm using were not encrypted. 
And you can use software-defined radio with those, and you don't even have to have the alarm panel or anything like that. They actually do periodically check in. So, like, the the batteries, like, the little, the weird little, I don't even, I forget what, they're lithium cells, but they're tiny, but they're really thick. And uh, those last, like, five years with these sensors, and it'll send a ping, like, every 15 minutes or so. And that, uh, the alarm panels will report, you know, a jam or RF interference if the sensors don't check in every 15 minutes and same with the water sensors like it'll set the you'll get a trouble light on the panel that's like this is maybe alarm worthy maybe not but there is rf interference or i haven't heard from this sensor in a while and we were doing that when we had like 6502 levels of compute power for these kinds of things which shows you how much garbage all of this stuff is yeah you're right do we assume too much is going to work just because of how reliable TCP IP is? You know, we, uh, as a generation of engineers, haven't grown up with just not working. <laughs> we assume too much is, is should work because TTL, Motorola and the TTL, TTL logic was too damn good. Yeah, I can see it. <laughs> TTL <laughs> logic was so good, we could build an entire computer out of it, the Apple II. Oh, I'm sorry, the original Apple. The problem was that we wouldn't put everything on 2.4 gigahertz. So <laughs> now everything has to communicate on the same exact channel, on the same exact radio frequency. <laughs> oh, you know, it's crazy, though. Like when you die, because I went down the rabbit hole in this whole IoT thing with radio frequencies and stuff, and I had yeah. no idea. But it really is the case, like the physics of it with spread spectrum. If you have a really well-implemented spread spectrum algorithm, the radio frequency bandwidth is uh, very high, shockingly high for these kinds of, of things. Because it's there's even a relatively small amount of frequency, the random random hopping and rapidly random randomly hopping at a relatively high frequency, doing those kinds of things on 2.4 gigahertz absent everything else. You could almost say that the FCC is getting to the point where it's obsolete. When our radio technology is a little bit more advanced, the whole spectrum allocation, blah, blah, blah. If everything, everything is, is implementing their radio circuit that way, it is a, it is, it's crazy. Nothing will interfere with anything else because it's, they're all using a different key to pick which thing is next for the thing that it's doing. Ah, I see. Boy, I hope that happens. In the meantime, I actually had to physically separate my Wi-Fi AP from my my Zigbee stick because they were just colliding with each other too much. And so now I've physically separated the two and my Zigbee network has become more reliable. It's not solid, solid, not 100%, but it's better now that I've just moved those two devices apart. Yeah, see, having to do that is just, we failed. <laughs> like, whatever that technology is, has failed. That's what it felt like. It felt like I was doing a stupid, okay, all right, well, all right, I'll do a layer one fix for this, I guess. <laughs> that's like, well, you know, we've got running water, but in order for it to be potable, I have to boil it. And it's like, that's not a first world problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, Alex, do you want to uh, set me straight about notes? Because we've got, this is the other area. We got a ton of feedback. This is my bad. Evernote got acquired and I set off the alarm bells on the show that I need a note system that'll be at least something the spouse can use for note capture and OCR of text and pictures and PDFs. And I got a lot of feedback, and a lot of them I think are going to tell me what you're going to tell me. Well, it's your own damn fault for just dropping it in there and just saying, yeah, I know Obsidian isn't the solution. Just <laughs> casually, like one liner with, <laughs> with you and Joe last week. That's your own damn fault. <laughs> yeah, it is. What about Obsidian with plugins? <laughs> there you go. Exactly, Wendell. Exactly. Obsidian is just a plugin engine. It's like a modern Emacs in a, in a lot of ways. It's a, it's a portal into a whole, dare I say, different dimension of yeah. uh, productivity stuff. I mean, you can honestly Whoa. lose weeks on YouTube just to productivity improvement channels. Would you have Catherine use it though? Yeah, I would. There is a, for example, she currently uses Calibre to manage all of the books that she's ever read she used to use okay. before that delicious library but that was a mac only app and then they stopped supporting it so we migrated her over to caliber and she literally just uses it like a checklist to say yes i've read this book no i haven't i own this book it's you know, that kind of stuff turns out 
someone has written a plugin for Obsidian to go to the Google Books API, pull down the covers, pull down all the information about that particular book, the publishers, all the rest of it. And then just with a couple of lines of text, you can, you know, write whether she's, whether it's in her to read pile or whether she's read it. And then because it's just plain text, you can do what you like with the rest of the note. You know, it's just a plain text file. You can write a review. You could write spoilers. You could do whatever you want in there. And that's just one example of how flexible just having a plain text system that is somewhat kind of self-aware can do with the plugin e ecosystem that it has. And the other thing that really grabbed my attention I, that I heard you mention was talking about PDFs and OCR and that kind of thing. It can do that obviously via a plugin, of course. There are different ways you can do this and you can do it all locally. I forget the name of the framework, unfortunately. Uh, if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But there are some people who swear by the Microsoft Azure Cloud OCR stuff. Okay. And you can actually, if you're doing, I think, 300 documents or less a month or something like that, it might even be something like 4,000. I forget the exact number. Okay. <laughs> Quite a difference, I know. Yeah, but easily, I wouldn't. it wouldn't even be more than a dozen, so. Right. So essentially, you can use the Azure uh, OCR stuff ah. and not even have to do any local processing. Although modern devices are so good, particularly with the neural engines and that kind of stuff, that it shouldn't really be too much of an issue. I use Office Lens and OneNote and then paste from that into the other thing because you can do the, just got the document camera and everything else. And then you just, you know, and then you're good to go. Uh, there's also, a, there's a plugin for Obsidian for NextCloud. There's a way to get the NextCloud's note-taking document management thing also talking to obsidian oh really that sounds perfect i haven't done that yet but there's a thread about it on the forum because we had a i did a video it's um the magic words are zettelkasten yes so it's like use like so this is zettelkasten is probably the closest way to describe what i do for knowledge capture and it it, 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 it originates from a guy that literally used index cards like a card catalog to make notes and it's not note notes it's really index notes so when you read a book and you know you're, you're making notes in in the in in the margins or whatever and if it's a dead tree book you also make those notes on a on a card or you just say hey this page in this book is about this thing that i've encountered before that i'm probably going to need if i were reading say one of michael lucas's book about books about zfs and it's like oh this is something that i've encountered in the past that uh, I needed reference information for. So then I would write the, the words that I know that I'll search later and a link to where that is or a note of what page that is in the dead tree book. And it's like, oh, this is in advanced DFS, page 37. And this is the keywords that go with that. And then when I'm in Obsidian or anything and I'm searching, it's like, boom, here's all the, th here's all the, the things that match that. And it's like, okay, here are my own personal notes of the times that I've encountered these things and links to them either in document format or even in dead tree format. And if you're willing to put your notes in a specific directory format, you can actually link all of this kind of backlinking, Zettelkasten style stuff link it together with mk docs and this is, this is what i do for all of my personal home documentation at the moment it goes through a drone ci uh, docker container and then spits out just sim a simple um static website which then an nginx container takes care of the actual hosting for me and the nice thing about that is obsidian has a sync service which they charge i think eight dollars a month for it used to be four and that was already in my mind expensive and then they doubled it to eight same for their published service as well. So they provide all the tools you would need as a non-self-hosting geek to go out and publish your notes and to sync your notes between iOS and Mac and Linux and blah, blah, blah. But the nice thing about doing it with MK Docs and keeping it all local is it's free. And the plugin that I use is self-aware of all the backlinks that are going on. So even in the web page, it generates in the static site it has all the kind of clever backlinks to all the different subtopics about XYZ. Yeah, I think Obsidian is one of those things. You, you, can, you can just use it like a dumb plain text folder structure if you want to, just to get started. You could also then jump in and start adding tags to things. So you could have it appear in multiple places at once, which 
long-time listeners might remember, that's why I really liked TiddlyWiki, is because I could have one note appear in multiple places, when actually the right thing to do is what Wendell was saying, is have an index card for that topic and then have like a, a list of all the places that that topic should appear or, or whatever, like a cheat sheet for that topic. But that's my point about Obsidian, really, is you can start super simple and then you can just add and iterate and everybody's note-taking process and everybody's thinking processes are different. And I think that's what makes Obsidian in, in particular different from all the rest. It, it, it's not really opinionated. It, okay, the, the initial simple text editor is a little opinionated, a tiny, tiny little bit. Okay. But, you know, if you want to take it further, you know, for Hadir or whatever, you know, that's it's the only game in town. I mean, I know there's Logsec, and some people really, really like that one. But yep, yep. For me, Obsidian is the the first mover advantage in the uh, in the plugin space. I like that you can build up. I had a good luck with uh, the Git plugin, also for synchronization. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, that does sound nice. So that's how I trigger the drone CI container. I've got a keyboard shortcut bound to Command Shift G that does Git. Uh, pushes it to Git, and then Drone picks it up. It also syncs every five minutes automatically when it's open as well. All right. Well, we did get a lot of mentions for Notion. Uh, Elray741 boosted him with uh, a row of ducks and said, I personally use Notion right now, and it's so versatile. I've been using it for daily work diary entries as I learn to do different programming. I haven't tried its OCR, but they have an API, so maybe somebody has built something for it. I don't remember where I heard about it from, but also appflowy.io is supposed to be an open source alternative to Notion might be worth checking out. Now, Alex, I know you gave a real serious look at Notion, even though it wasn't necessarily self-hosted. Notion's fantastic. I, I don't really have very many things to say about it, apart from the fact that I don't own the data. What do you think about AppFlowy then? If it's an open source self-hosted Notion, is that worth my time, do you think? Or should I just not bother with this stuff? You should take a look at it and report back. That's your homework, sir. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I will. That's the stuff that I get sucked into, too. It's like, okay, because I had a media wiki for some things set up. And I was like, this is great. And then it got just large and complicated enough. It's like, okay, now how do I merge this back in? And so I still have a media wiki thing, which is like, oh, what was that thing? It's like, oh, right. It's in the media wiki instance. And then it's like, I was like, I really, it's on the to-do list to fix that someday, but I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I think over the years, I've accumulated a bunch of, you know, when I was on iOS the first time in 2012. Apple Notes. I've got some Apple Notes from 2012. I then got some simple notes that I used to use for a long time. And then I moved to notational velocity for a little while. And then I moved to something else. And I've got (laughs) stuff scattered everywhere. And it's just, it's not. It's not nice. It's not manageable. Whenever I think, oh, where where did I write down the serial number for that motherboard? I think, oh, God, which app did I put that into? Because when, <laughs> when did I buy it? <laughs> yeah, I know. Or and in my case, Evernote, too. Nomadic Coder sent 1,555 sats to say on an Evernote replacement, and this is probably the number one I heard. So I'm curious to know what you think about this. Try Joplin with NextCloud. I moved from Evernote and was happy with that. It syncs using NextCloud. What, what Nomadic Coder has here is probably what I've heard the most, is Joplin with NextCloud. I'm tempted to try that, but I'd have to rely on NextCloud to do some of the optical character recognition stuff it looks like. So I'd, I'd be going even deeper into NextCloud land. Yeah, Joplin's fine. I mean, it's um, its sync has lost me data in the past, which I think we covered on this show even. Uh, and that was what I what kind of forced me towards the notion angle is whilst I was writing some articles for Ars Technica. So I was quite cheesed off when all that work disappeared on me. <laughs> I recall. All right, that was Joplin, huh? All right. That was Joplin. I mean okay. it only happened one time. But much like Zigbee, one time is one time too many. <laughs> I don't feel like I live in a first world country when these things happen. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? Exactly. Data loss is not acceptable. Well, here's the last note. DJ boosted in with 69,420 sats. Hey, I wonder if there was a message there. Nice. Hot boost coming in from an OG SRE. Glad to hear that Joe was on the show. Yeah, yeah. Joe and I had, by the way, a good ZFS versus ButterFS discussion in the members post show, which uh, was spicy. What is there to discuss? 
<laughs> um, <laughs> FS is better, isn't it? Oh yeah, well, no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> why can't we have both? Is my is my version. Why can't I? Why can't I put ButterFS on my root and ZFS on my on my data? That's that's my that's my position. I feel like maybe ButterFS for a Raspberry Pi, but then. Of course, after I said that, I saw somebody release an article about how well ZFS seems to work on the Raspberry Pi 4. <laughs> so uh, I got to try it. I really do have to try because I've only ever tried ButterFS on the Raspberry Pi and I've never tried ZFS on the Raspberry Pi. I just wish we could get over this licensing bollocks, don't you? Yeah, yeah that would solve it. That certainly would be nice, wouldn't it? Maybe. Maybe in 2035. I just think anytime anybody asks me about something at work and... I've got my corporate hats on. I'm like, oh, just use ZFS. Oh, no, no, you can't. I can't recommend that today, Alex. Nope, nope. I have to do the company thing. That's true. You're working for the company that's trying to come up with Stratus. I mean, that's never going <laughs> to... Well, no, that's IBM now. All the storage stuff has moved. Oh, I'm sure you, you saw go. that news. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I've actually been having a lot of fun. I've been, you know, the home, the whole home setup, I'm re-architecting some things. And it's like Proxmox versus XCPNG. And I'm just over here like, you know, OpenShift is a thing. Uh, we can we can do a lot with OpenShift. <laughs> OpenShift is pretty cool. Uh, and Ceph is a pretty easy setup. Like, let's go hyperconverge. This is fine. I can run it on 16 servers for free. Let's just do it. I think you would need your head examining if you wanted to run OpenShift at home just for a home <laughs> no. workload, to be honest. Don't you have OpenShift at home? Come on. <laughs> no, I mean, I used to, but then, I don't know, I just, I like my stuff working, you know what I mean? <laughs> that says something about my abilities as an admin more than OpenShift, okay? <laughs> yeah, and probably probably, probably my uh, my my preference to have ButterFS on my Raspberry Pis than, than ZFS. I've managed to make a career out of telling people how to install OpenShift and architect all the various different etcd nonsense. As soon as the cluster's up and running, I'm kind of like, all right, that's your thing now. <laughs> Somebody else's problem at that point, right? Yeah. Exactly. How do I get that gig? That's what the SREs are for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you to our SREs too. And thank you to everybody who boosts in. There was more boosts, but of course we're trying to keep it nice and tight these days, but you can grab a new podcasting app at newpodcastapps.com to send a boost into the show as well. And we'll have some more there in the future. And last but not least, a big thank you to Wendell for joining us this week. Wendell, it was great to catch up with you. It was great. There's so much exciting hardware stuff happening. It's magical. It is great. I feel like, I mean, we didn't even touch on Intel Arc at all. Maybe we'll save that for the post show for our members. Oh, right. Let's do that. I do definitely want to talk about that. There's just so much stuff going on at the minute. It It's after the last couple of years of hardware just being jacked because of crypto and COVID supply chain stuff. It's so amazing that I am seriously considering building a desktop computer for the first time in five years. It's very exciting. That's nice. That is nice. Good for you, Alex. I'd love to hear about that. And you know what? I also love to hear from everybody out there listening to the show. They can go to selfhosted.show slash contact. That's the way to get a hold of us. And we usually point people towards Twitter, but I have no idea if it's going to be around next week. So, you know, who knows? But if it's still there, I'm there at Ironic Badger. <laughs> Where's the Go-based open source clone of Twitter? Go or Rust? I'll, I'll, I'll take either. <laughs> yeah. Something I can just run as a single binary on my server? That'd be great. <laughs> I guess in the meantime, find me on the Matrix Fediverse, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. I have also signed up for that Mastodon thing, so if that's of if that's of interest to you, there'll be a link in the show notes of where to find me. I'm I'm still not fully sure how to tell people how to find me on Mastodon yet. So go toot, Alex. You got to go toot. Oh, I've got to go toot. Have I? Is that not Truth Social? Is that not a no, no, no? Those are truths. I've got to re-truth. Okay, that's right. on Truth Social. Then you got toots on Mastodon, which what a load of nonsense. Isn't that adorable? I mean, tweets was already silly enough, but that's just a, that's a word now, isn't it? Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Self Hosted. This has been selfhosted.show slash 85. A little while back, I bought one of these ASRock A380. Oh, Chris is also showing one on the live stream as well. He's bought one. Uh, one of the Intel Arc GPUs. I wondered if you had any thoughts about them, Wendell. So I just posted a video with the Arc A770. Perfect. I get the 8 gig version. It's the ASRock version. They did a good job building it, I think. Gamers Nexus let me borrow an A380 that I've been abusing. I may have murdered it. It's probably fine. I've been abusing it on Linux. 
I may have tripped over a bug in Linux where it could actually like do something terrible. Uh-oh. But it's probably fine. You didn't melt its power connector, did you? <laughs> no, nothing. Fortunately, it's it's immune to that problem. So that's, <laughs> oh, that's good. That's okay, good. No, these, these are all just software problems, which are much worse. It really is. It has the potential to be something special for Linux. But I feel like that Intel has this, the engineering team, the software engineering team, I think, on this so worked up and going a million miles a minute on everything not Linux that it'll probably be a little while before Linux really gets the attention that it needs to really dot the I's and cross the T's. Something like the A380 or the 770 as a media encode card for like that home media server, plus also like run along HDMI cable and connect it to your living room TV or ever how you want to do that. It's probably phenomenal, especially at like the price point. I mean, this thing is a is a three hundred ish dollar card that is performance generally between a thirty sixty Ti and a thirty seventy, and its weakness is actually its strength on Linux, which is it doesn't really do super great with DirectX nine. It's like guess what, Linux doesn't do great with DirectX nine either. We have DXVK, and you can you can actually run DXVK if you're if you're really masochistic. And this, I can't believe this is true. When you run DXVK on Windows and play an old DirectX game on Windows through DXVK, it's faster on this hardware than it is natively. Because of <laughs> course it is. That's just, I didn't even know you could run DXVK on Windows to begin with, but that's amazing. <laughs> it's not fun. Okay, all right. <laughs> I, I imagine. It's a, it's a level of masochism. I just got done watching Linus's video with the 30-day uh, arc challenge part one. Ah. <laughs> oh. uh, my goodness. That, uh, it's that bad, that, huh? The drivers have some way to go. For example, he had an old Windows install that was uh, an MBR-based install. Because of the resizable bar that the Intel drivers require, he had to reform. What well, I didn't reformat. He he converted it using a GPT conversion tool. So, as long as you're on UEFI, then you're all good to go. <laughs> if you have one of the the OG NVIDIA G Sync monitors, you're not good to go. Oh, really? Hmm. So, uh, I have this A three eighty. Because I have a new System76 Thaleo, and I'm planning to do an all-Intel build in this Thaleo, and I want to run OBS on the Linux desktop with, with a current kernel. Do you think I'm going to get there? Do you think it'll work? Yeah, you'll get there. It'll work. I would. Uh, ob uh, I don't think there's an OBS plugin for acceleration yet, uh, Okay. but the OBS on Windows is shockingly good for the hardware assist. Okay. I mean, it's good enough that it wouldn't be a crazy recommendation to have like a streamer. It's like, oh, add this as a second GPU so that you could do local AV1 recording and have that do your H.264 streaming to Twitch or whatever. AV1 is where it's at. I, I think eventually in time, uh, as long as I can get a device that plugs into my TV that will also decode AV1 without having to transcode for like the media server side of things, it means I'll be able to keep an old CPU lying around and just throw in this 380 yeah. and then just use that with Plex or whatever to do the real-time transcoding. And it, it's going to be monstrous when FFmpeg fully supports it on Linux. Yeah, very true. I can't wait, honestly.